Work shouldn't feel like a drag. And you shouldn't have to sacrifice your soul for a job you love. Determined to rethink the future of work. She's out of her depth on purpose. With fresh ideas, interviews, and stories from her life on the road. Meet Europe's newest digital nomad, Blair Palmer. Hello and welcome back to a brilliant gamble episode 77. I hope you are really well. I am in Croatia at the moment still. We were actually in the UK for a few days last week, um, but back here since the beginning of this week and we are here until next Thursday when we get back in the lovely camper van that is Rex and uh, head off to our next Airbnb. We're going to be going to Germany next, which is so exciting because although we've passed through the country, we haven't actually stayed there for any period of time. So we're going to spend about a week in Germany and then we're heading continuing to head east across Europe to France where we'll be there for another week and then back to the UK for some uh, time with friends and family and a little bit of work. So that is our plan and of course in between riding around in the RV and um, going to water parks I'm also setting up some really fantastic interviewees for you for the podcast. People who are inspiring, people who have been at various crossroads in their lives and taken the road less traveled and they'll be telling us about why how they got there what they did when they got there and how it's worked out for them and that really brings me to today's program because it's a very great privilege to introduce you to today's podcast guest Richard McCann is an author and a keynote speaker He's also the son of the first victim of the notorious Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe. In 1975, Sutcliffe attacked and killed Richard's mum. Richard was five years old at the time. Eventually, Sutcliffe was found guilty of 20 attacks on women. 13 of those women died. In this interview, Richard talks about his life, the pivotal moments that changed his story and his mother's murder was only one of them, and the moments where he decided to take charge and choose his own path. Richard is a really inspirational guy who proves that we choose our attitude and we choose numerous times in our life which direction we're going to take. So without further delay, let's go to the interview. Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks. My pleasure and uh, great to, well, I'm honoured to be invited. So, uh, okay. <laughs> well, There's so many, so many things to talk about, but I think it, it's important to start sort of at the beginning of your story. And I, I'm really interested to know about what your life was like. Um, obviously, you had quite a dramatic event happened in your life when you were five but what what was your life like before you were five tell me about those those early years well we were, we were brought up on a you know inner city uh, council estate and even though i've subsequently had it confirmed that we were living in poverty because i've got the the file that the social services kept on us as a family i knew even as a young four five-year-old that we had a lot less than a lot of those around us or at least a lot of the, a lot less than those that I went to school with, because I think people on the street that I lived on were all going through similar things. I think so. You know, the usual 
I say the usual, it was usual for us anyway. That was alcohol, lots of alcohol, you know, lots of, we didn't have, we didn't have new clothes. Everything was secondhand and that's not unusual. Some of the things that were unusual for us was, uh, I guess, the drugs in the house. My father was a, was a, well, a very violent man. And he, his, his parenting skills weren't what, what you'd need as a young child. And so, so he was a big drinker, a big gambler and a violent man. He left and he was he replaced by a man, mum's boyfriend, and he was the one that took the drugs. I think he dealt drugs because I've got this memory of being forced into the loft to, to reach around in the dark to get this bag of something, which uh, I dare say was drugs. And one night he gave something to me and my sister, which made us hallucinate. So maybe he was having a bit of fun with us. You know? So, uh, so it, was, it was a very turbulent time, to say the least. Lots of beatings. Uh, my mum was subjected to lots of beatings from both my dad and boyfriends. So, yes, it was a tough time. It was a tough time. And then, as you know, listeners will know, when you were five, your mum went out for the evening and she never came home. What happened? Well... I mean, I mean, that wasn't unusual, her going out drinking. And sometimes she'd go out drinking and leave us there. You know, you know, I didn't think that was wrong or... But this night was different because, of course, she didn't come home. And it was a really restless night because what would normally happen in the house is mum would come and see to us if one of us was crying. Usually that would be the youngest Angela who was three at the time. And this night she didn't come to Angela to see to her. And so and Sonia, the eldest at the time had just turned seven, she was um, trying to comfort Angela and telling her stories. And it's a heartbreaking scene, actually, but it is what it is. And the following morning, Sonia eventually woke me because I did get back to sleep and she just basically told me that mum would not come home that night and that we were to go looking for her or, or not go looking for her, go and wait for her at the bus stop. So I did as she suggested and we left the house and, we put our coats and over our pajamas, and we wandered down a path on the field at the back of the house because Mum always did that, hiding from the neighbours, I think, who were spying on her for the social services. I know that because it's in my file now that I've got. And we just sat at the local bus stop, and it was just such an eerie feeling because it was dark, but there was like a real thick fog and mist. It was October, and it just had this creepy feel about it, and you know. Um, made worse by the fact that, you know, something was not right, mum was not there. So, but we had no idea that we'd never see her again. We went in hope that, well, not in hope, we just, we were convinced that she'd come home somehow, she'd roll in at some hour, maybe a taxi, but we sat at the bus stop and we just waited for her to come off the bus, which we had done before, you know, during the weekends when she'd been to the local market for fruit and veg. So this wasn't unusual for us to sit and wait for her, but it was different because it was so early and, and um, well, she never did come home. And that was the day that, you know, sent me on a completely different path that I was unprepared for. And we were taken eventually to the local children's home. Uh, still unaware of what had happened, but it's, it's just a day I'll never forget. I mean, one of the things that's extraordinary about your life, and um, we'll come to this uh, various points when your life took a, a, a sharp turn in one direction or another. This was one of the times when your life took a sharp term, turn that was not your choice. 
this was something that happened to you. So I understand that the, the police came to the house. Is that right? And they told you that your mum had gone to heaven and she wasn't coming back. Is that what happened? That is what happened. But that happened at the children's home. Right. Actually, before that happened, we were taken into the visitor's room a, few, you know, a short while after we arrived there. We, and I thought because it was a visitor's room, my mum would be there. Because we're not being told at this point that we're not going to see her again. So I walked in there full of hope and quickly realised she wasn't there. And there was a police photographer who took a, this really poignant uh, picture of the four of us holding toys. And that picture appeared in the papers that afternoon. And, and, it's around, and, and it was after that then that we were eventually sat down. I mean, t- for that officer to, to break that news to four children must have been so difficult for him. And, you know, and it was difficult for us to hear and, you know, as a young child, I'm five, I'm, I'm almost, in fact, I turned six within a few days. But as a, so as a five-year-old boy, I actually did not believe him when he said we were never going to see her again. That was something I couldn't imagine. I'd never, I didn't really understand, well, I must have known about people dying. But well, actually, I don't, I don't know if I did, I don't know if I did know at that age that people passed away, because I'd never experienced anybody passing away. So, yeah, it was a really surreal new dimension to my life to think of my mum who I saw the night before well, I'm not going to see her again why? we weren't obviously told that she'd been found on the field at the back of the house we weren't told that had been stabbed and they kept that from us but I think I worked out just because of some of the things that were being said that she died on that field at the back of the house you just didn't know under what circumstances and little did we all know, not just the family, you know, society or, or Yorkshire in particular, that this was the start of a, a massive campaign of terror that fell upon the north of England. You know, mum was the first person that he apparently killed. That's right. So, it, it, you know, in the coming weeks and months, people would have been more aware, they would have been more vigilant, they would have been um, more nervous, more scared. But of course, because she was the first, there was no no reason for anybody to suspect that it wasn't more than just, you know, she'd gone out and had a few too, too many drinks and just was gonna roll in later. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't until the following year, but we're only talking months, it was, it was, it was actually the, completely by freak coincidence, I've since discovered the second person who was found dead was, it was on the day that mum was laid to rest. It was on the day of her funeral. So, and when they linked the two together, that's when people started to get, as you say, a nervous vigilant. And, but, but they thought they were, the general public thought they were protected because they were both sex workers, apparently. So obviously it's not gonna, uh, it's not gonna affect most people. And um, yeah, and it wasn't until 70, that was 76, January 76. It wasn't until, and I hate using these words, but you know what I mean? It wasn't until the momentum started and more and more people died that people started then to sit up. And when the fifth person to die, who was an apparent, these are not my words, but the police and maybe the public described the first innocent victim was when a 16-year-old girl called Jay MacDonald was killed, who incredibly lived on the same street that we lived with my mum and, and babysat for us, but not the night mum died. 
when we were told all this or when we discovered this, well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here because what I was going to say there was that's when I got, I became full of fear. I, in my overworked imagination, thought that this man knew everybody on the street, knew who babysat for us and would, had been watching the house for months. And obviously that wasn't true, but it was the, it was the time, this was the, 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 the the turn of events which meant that the, the general public began to be fearful because this was a 16-year-old girl that um, was just walking home from work, I think it was. And she wasn't the first, there wasn't then a few other apparent innocent victims. Then things started to get scary. I've got to say, I mean, I know you're uncomfortable with it, but the idea of an innocent victim versus whatever your mum was. I wonder, I wonder if, um, yeah, I find that it's, it's a very uncomfortable and inappropriate it's, it, to see it that way, isn't it? I, I wonder if your experiences in the, in the following years um, were, if your mum, in adverted commas, had been an innocent victim, mm. as perceived by society, do you think that the way you were treated afterwards and your experiences would have been different? I, I, I'm not sure we would, we personally would have been treated any differently by most people because as we grew up, while all this was going on around us, you know, we, well, for a start in the house, we didn't talk about it. And then as far as the outside public's concerned, people that we came to contact with, teachers, for example, I mean, I think they were all, they, they treat us really well and were caring. So it wouldn't matter if she fell into that apparent innocence, you know, um, group. We, we, were tr we were still tr 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 really well, but there were, but I wouldn't have had to have heard some of the things I heard from some of my school friends. And I'm not, I'm not saying that they were doing, they thought that or knew they were doing anything wrong, but my mum was described as a prostitute. So as I grew up, I'm talking about eight, nine, 10, people would ask me that, is that true your mum was a prostitute? And I had to work out what that was in, in, in my young head. And so, of course, if she fell into that, you know, non-sex worker category, they wouldn't have been asking me that. And I wouldn't have probably had my self-esteem dented in the way that I did. I, I do remember a, an incident, and I can't remember after who died, but I do remember being in one of my neighbor's houses and somebody else had been died, somebody else had been killed, and it was on the news. I was in the house. And I can distinctly remember this woman saying, they deserve all they get. And I, and, I, and I heard that. That hurt me. And I thought, have you, and she must have understood who I was. And so, yeah, but I don't think she would have, I can't say that she would not have said that had my mum not been a, a sex worker. So yeah, I, I'm not sure we would have been treated differently. But I think I would have thought of myself differently had I not realised that mum was one of the, the deserving ones to die. If she'd have been, I don't know, I'm saying not a teacher or something, I think I would have felt differently. Because just I would have picked up on the fact that these women were looked at differently. And that's not even where it ended, is it? Because if you'd have then, you said that you were treated really well after, but your life then didn't didn't turn around in a way you were sent to live with your father who was as you've already said not not a terribly kind loving man 
well, he wasn't able to show his feelings and emotions well. So, but I, I do think he did care for us. I mean, the fact that he took us on or took us back after, I mean, he'd started a new life with his new girlfriend when mum died. So he took us back on. So he did care for us. But what he didn't have, well, two things. What I don't think he had was those skills to, to um, well, to just bring up for, for children, let alone for traumatised children. And then we had the, the double blow was when he drank alcohol, particularly when he drank spirits, he became this person you did not want to cross. He became a different person. He was a monster. He had this other side to him. And, and you know, there were some things that we were subjected to and witnessed that were horrific. Drowning the dog, our pet dog, which was this new thing we had in the house, this thing that gave us some joy and some fun. And, and he killed the dog. You know, we would be beaten. Stepmom would be beaten. You know, I've got that. He was just, he, he just needed, well, he needed a lot of support. And I just don't, don't think he was equipped to bring us up. Well, he wasn't. How old were you when you left home? Six. Well, it's, it's a little bit complicated. I mean, I left home. I ran away from home a couple of times, but not long term. It was a couple of nights here and there and just slept away from home because I was growing up and had all this, you know, testosterone flowing around in my body. So I, I ran away from home after a big argument and I slept in a portaloo one night. And, um, but I left home officially, I guess, in year 11, or we'll call it the fifth year, but 16 years of age. And I moved in with my sister, Sonia, who incidentally left home at 12 after beating from my father. She went into care, back into care. And so I didn't see a lot of her, but when she, so when I turned 16, after another argument with my father, I left home and went to move in with her. She'd been given a flat. And I stayed with her for a number of months. Oh, I, I can't remember how long it was, but I actually went back home to dad after I had an argument with Sonia. Oh, there was something trivial, but I ended up going, she kicked me out and I had to go back home with my tail between my legs. And I spent another few months back with dad and Pauline, who who had some more children of their own by now. So the, the family was all changing. But before long, she ended up leaving him. And it meant that I was left at home in the family, what was the family home, with just me and my dad, which was okay. But, you know, I've got this memory of him getting me up night after night after night to discuss, you know, when he'd been drinking, why Paul had left him and what had he done wrong. And he just didn't seem to comprehend where his failures were. But so I stayed with him for a few months and then I finally decided to try and make a life for myself and I joined the army and off I went. And he didn't approve of that, but I, I went to the army uh, and ended up in Germany. But it didn't turn out the way I hoped because, you know, I was living a lie and I'd lied about my mum. I didn't want to tell anybody because I was embarrassed about the whole thing. So I, I said that my mum died in a car accident and I got away with that until in late 89, after being posted out to Germany, so I'm like 19 by now, a Marshall Cavendish brought out a magazine series about murderers and Peter Sutcliffe, mum's killer, was edition number one. My cover was blown, my secret was out and people were talking to me about it and 
not in a negative, not in a nasty way. Just, just say, hey, this is you. This is your mum, isn't it? And I took a step backwards and had a breakdown. And before long, I was on this psychiatric ward in Hanover in Germany. And when everything came out, they, they, they basically discharged me. And I came back to, back to my hometown in Leeds. Yeah. I'm really interested in, um, in, in this. I mean, to, to one extent or another, we all um, wear a little bit of a public face. You know, that there are very few people, maybe our very closest friends or family who get to see the true us. Um, and the rest of the world sees, a, to a greater or lesser extent, what we decide to show them. In your case, you were hiding something really really significant did, did it feel like that to you did it feel like you were you know being inauthentic or, or or hiding something or did it feel like this is really sensible and this actually allows me to be me I guess to some degree it allowed me to be me you know the, the fun side of me and you know I enjoyed a bit of banter with people but the truth is I wasn't really being me it was a mask it was a it was a type of me that I thought I could get away with without disclosing the truth. But it was something that I carried around with me, but only to myself. I can remember when I was in the army and I got into a bit of a trouble around all this. I mean, I went on this drunken rampage when it all came out. And I remember being marched from the, the mess hall where I was based. I had to go see the officer and I got marched by this bombardier, this like the, the guy with two stripes, and they didn't know anything, and I'm, I know everything, and 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 I know some of my close friends knew about everything because they saw the magazine, but most of them didn't. And this guy was marching to the officer's station, and I just remember thinking, you have no idea, not that he should have any idea, but I said you've no idea what I've been through and what what's going on in my head, and 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 I've had that. For, for many years where I remember sitting at the desk at another employer's and they're kicking off and giving me a hard time. And I just remember thinking to myself, you've no idea. And I don't know what I mean by that, but, but I just wasn't being myself. I was trying to get away with putting on this mask or putting on this hat, wearing a false hat. And I didn't do bad, but it was there inside and it would creep out in all sorts of places. And, well, obviously, you know, all these years later, I am now who I am. To a certain degree, you know, you know. But I'm no longer I'm no longer ashamed of being associated with Peter Sutcliffe and what he did to my mum. I'm no longer embarrassed about my mum being described as a sex worker. I'm, I'm not bothered. It doesn't change. I mean, of course, it's important and how how sad to hear that my mum had to go to those lengths to get by. But it doesn't change the love that I have for her. In fact, it, it, it makes it stronger because, gosh, she would do anything for us as a family, is how I see it. You, um, when we were chatting um, previously about all this, I asked you what, was, what were some of the crossroads that you found, yourselves, you found yourself at and, and some of those crossroads had made the most, most different difference to you. And... So you, you're describing that you had this breakdown and I'm wondering if that's one of the crossroads. And then you also described to me how um, your sister Sonia um, uh, got into some trouble. She was with an abusive boyfriend 
and that's another time when you had this this moment of what do I do here yeah so yeah so the, for me the, the I mean the significant crossroad is when I lost my mum you know that that was a big you know metaphorical crossroads but, but that, the, the choice I mean I had no choice in where I went next where I did have some choice and it was a crossroads was when I got kicked out of the army now I could have gone downhill at that point and I didn't I tried my best to kind of fight my way back and get back into employment so but but yes the the, the next and it's bigger it's more significant because of where it led me was when Sonia stabbed her boyfriend in self-defense it took, and I had no idea it was going to take me that way and, and once again I had a choice do I go batter him do we because he survived and he did some horrible things to my to my sister and and, and I could have chose to retaliate and go and, and you know, cause him some harm but I didn't I knew that wasn't the way but I, I decided I would I would finally find the courage to bear my soul and tell the world you know well what we'd both been through me and Sonia and my my motivation for that was and I'd write a book and I decided to write a book I wanted the world to know I did not want the world to look down at my sister as some drunken well whatever word you want to use drunken you know woman that had stabbed her boyfriend and and and, and want and have the public thinking lock her up and throw away the key because they just did not understand I we understood what we'd been through and we were both, we were all aware that we did not get the love and support that we should have got. And that influenced some of the life choices we made along the way. And in Sonia's case, is her choice in, you know, being a, not attracted to, but tending to fall into relationships with very violent men who started out being charming and then would become these monsters, a bit like my father, I suppose. And I, I, I needed the world to know that. So that was the decision, or that's where the decision came from to write that book yeah I think it's amazing to me that that I mean it's not amazing in one way of course that that would be your motivation but it was a big risk for you to to bear all to write a book to to put yourself back into the sort of limelight into the public gaze um you know when you could have you could have kept it under wraps a little bit more you could have kept a low profile but it was so important for you that people understood her yeah, and it was an even bigger risk when you consider, and we've, we've kind of missed this important crossroads out, and that is, although when I came out of the army, I did claw myself back and, and, and actually do well at work and got promoted and ended up getting myself a mortgage, I ended up mixing with the wrong crowd, and after taking drugs, started dealing drugs, I got sent to prison. So... W w the, the same prison that Peter Sutcliffe was actually sent to. So the big risk for me, the biggest risk for me was when I came out of prison and started rebuilding my life, and we're talking now 1997, 98, 99, and, and after, um, I didn't tell anybody I'd been to prison. In fact, I almost lost my house when I came out of prison because nobody would give me a second chance. But I lied at my, the final interview. I, I lied and said that I, well, I didn't tell them I'd been to prison. I said that I'd, spent some time not working, looking after my ill father. And they accepted that. So that, so then, and I, and I was living in fear for years, thinking that if anybody finds out, if they find out that I've been to prison, I'll lose my job, I'll lose that security that I managed to claw, keep hold of. 
So writing that book, I'm telling people I've been to prison in the book and I knew there was a massive risk, but I knew that the risk was worth taking because whatever happened, it could not compare to losing my mum. I mean, you know, so I decided to go ahead and, you know, roll the dice. What's her name? So Susan Jeffers. Mm. And do it anyway. Many years ago. And I, and I did that. And I had no idea where that would lead. And in some ways, I would not be speaking to you right now had I not found that courage to write that book. Just so you know the full picture, the police dropped the charges after Sonia um, stabbed uh, Jed. Jed, I call him in the book. That's not his real name. But yeah, so they dropped the charges. In fact, I stopped writing the book when they dropped the charges. But through a, a chance meeting with somebody else that had had a book written about his life, I, I felt like the universe was encouraging me along to, to then get back to it. And I did. And that came out in 2004. Wow. 14 years and it's flown by so quickly. And that really was pivotal, wasn't it? Because that led you into a, a, a whole other way of living um, than, you know, as you said, you, you had worked really hard and you had had made something of yourself. I mean, with some hiccups, of course, along the way, but you had, you had been committed to that. But I mean, your life today as a, as a motivational speaker, as, as someone who goes around schools and speaks to organizations and some huge, huge events that you've done um, is so different than you could have imagined at that time. And one of the things I find extraordinary is that you had a, I mean, writing a book is one thing. I, writing a book is hard, but you had a major fear of public speaking that you then had to overcome. Well, I, I've, always, I've always had a fear of speaking, even just, just meeting people, just meeting people would cause me a problem because I was always convinced that, and it's, got, it's, it's surely got to do with how I felt as a child that people were talking about me in a negative way or thinking about me in a negative way. That is something that stuck with me and I've had to battle with. So as a young adult and as I've got older, it's just always stuck with me. And that would stop me, for example, going into a menswear shop and asking for some help because they haven't got my size. I would be terrified to do it. Well, I wouldn't do it because I would be convinced that as I walk away, they'd be laughing at me. So it's not just a fear of speaking. It's a fear of just being in front of people, communicating, talking to people. So, yeah, so when I got my first invitation to speak, after writing the book, I... Well, you know what? I, because I knew I had a lifetime of being faithful of speaking, I knew, and I'm not stupid, I knew that if I accepted, it might just help me personally with that lack of confidence. I had no idea that it would become a career for me. So, yeah, on 5th of, no, February the 8th, 2005, and I will never forget it. It, was, it wasn't even a keynote presentation. It was a little workshop to a small group of people that were involved with working with those from hard to reach families. I guess the kind of family I came from as a child and it was, it was horrific, but, but I did it. And, and, and that was the start of what's become a very busy and successful career for me. What was horrific about it? Do you remember what, what you found most well, the, Just, I mean, knowing what, I mean, I, just, I, I coach people in how to present now. I, I know how, what it takes to engage an audience. And I know that it's, it's a pop, well, oh. I just did an appalling job. I didn't stand. I sat in a chair. I had no slides. I, 
I'm going to say I had no structure, but I did have a structure because I just went through my life. But I just told the story in a really amateur way that must have had them thinking, this guy has no idea what he's doing. But it was an interesting story. And my only prop was that photograph that was taken on the day mum died. I had the actual photograph that some author gave to me and I passed it around for them to look at rather than having it on a slide. So like I said, it was, it was shocking, but I did it. And even when I did, I didn't, I didn't think I'd do it again, but I, I, I did. I got three invitations that year. And um, anyway, the following year, 2006, I, I began to realize that I did have a powerful story and message. And that when people heard the message and they heard about, but not just mum dying, but how I dealt with it and how I, you know, fought my way back, people were inspired and helped by hearing that message. And, you know, every time that I do that and hear from someone that's been helped by hearing that moment, it means their death wasn't in vain. I mean, it's certainly true that, you know, the story is, is, I mean, it's so unusual. It's so extraordinary to hear somebody be able to articulate that story and, and, um, for us to have just a glimpse into that that life that you've had that in itself is is incredible but i think you know i saw you speak and that's that's why i asked you to be on on the show that that i saw you speak and i see a lot of speakers because as a speaker myself i'm always you know hanging around and seeing all the other people on the bill um but i was really inspired so for me it, it it's and for audiences i'm sure it's more than just a story it's it, it, there is this there is this message and it's what you call that i can attitude um which is cool because i can is in your name and um but but i'm really curious about what the i can is because you don't talk about it you know some speakers will say well there's three things that the i can attitude means the number one you don't do that you you weave this i can attitude into your stories and we're left being inspired and feeling like we can as well is it possible for you to summarize what what this I can is, where it, where it comes from. Well, it comes from each of us, and it's quite simple, deciding that I can do this. It's, it's as simple as that. And I don't mean like in, a, right, in an egotistical way. Listen, I can do it so you can do it too. I'm a big rah-rah American speaker. Forgive me if you're from America, by the way, listening in. But all I'm saying is that story of that child, and I, when, I, when I describe it in this way, it's almost as though it wasn't me, but if that child can be subjected to that early start, the first five years, and then have that happen to his mum in, in such a public way, and then go through all those years of you know, violence and all this very public campaign from this man in a public way, or if that child can go through all that and from time to time, draw upon something inside that he has. And it's not a special power. It's a simple decision that I'm going to go have a go at doing this. I can do this. Well, then you can do it too. It's just simple. It's not academic. It's not the 17 steps to whatever. It's just this, it's about self-talk and self-belief. And I talk about this from somebody that did have a lack of self-belief but somehow found, found a way by taking small steps, finding out the self-belief, that belief in himself, a lot of the time without the help from anybody else. So I guess that's why people are inspired. It's just this, I can, I can do this. I mean, you don't necessarily have to use the words, I can. 
it's just a belief. You know, it's just an English word that or two words. I can. If you had, if you were French, you wouldn't probably say I can. But it's just that self belief that you can go and go out and do the thing that you want to do. And yes, it might take you longer than somebody else, and you might need to ask somebody else to help you. But it's just that belief that you can achieve things. If somebody else can do it, so can you. We're all. I grew up believing that other people were better than me. Simply because I had a different journey, or in my mind, a, um, a more negative journey than them. Sorry, a journey filled with more challenges. And because of the things I went through, I thought it made me less, made me less of a person. And it's not true. And what I've come to understand as an adult now, and not just now, but in more recent years, is we're all pretty similar, and we are all made of the same stuff. If you you know cut us open, we're all the same, really. What's different is the journey we've been on and what breaks my heart is when I hear or I see people being how I was as a child, going through life thinking that they can't do these things when actually you can. This idea that it's a decision, you know, I wonder if we're making decisions all day anyway and that decision not to, uh, to not go for it or to not believe in ourselves or to listen to that negative self-talk in our head is a decision to a decision with tons of consequences you know t tons of doors closing tons of roads not taken mm -hmm. um where and so you might as well make the decision that you can mm -hmm. and 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 yet of course one of the reasons that people don't is the risk you know the risk that well things might not be great right now but at least i know i can handle this because i'm handling it now whereas what if i take a risk take a gamble and what happens I can't handle, mm. then what? And I, what, what, what do you think? Because there must be moments when you think, this is getting really huge now. <laughs> I mean, there's a film about to be made of, of your story. This, is, this has become very huge. Mm. Uh, what happens to you? What do you do when you have that moment of, oh gosh, is this, is this actually got too big? Maybe I can't. Most of the time, I don't go through life thinking, maybe I can't I find and my question is how can I so how can I make a success of this new thing how can I develop my brand how can I make more of a difference that's what I ask myself and when you ask those questions you're going to get a different answer and in fact we just me and Tracy in the office we've just we just walked around the we walked around the office just for a bit of fresh air and light because we're doing really well and I've become real, well, I've been successful the last 10 years. I've, I've been really busy speaker, but you know, we're going through a phenomenal surge this year compared to just last year. And I, and I, I found myself saying, what, what if it all stopped? But I kind of said it tongue in cheek. And, that, and that, I guess that would be a bit of negative self-talk. What if it did all stop? Well, what, what if it did all stop? Well then we'd do something else. Um, but you know, if you, my personal belief is, there's no reason for it to all stop. Do you know something? I'm, I'm going I'm to rephrase that. Well, I don't believe there's any reason for it to all stop, but it could all stop. We, we, we've just heard here in the UK in the last few days, was it Friday or Thursday, I think it was, that uh, I forget the name of the department store, that's loads of them are shutting down, House of Fraser. So actually things can all stop, can't they? But what I do believe is whatever happens, well, two things. Whatever happens, if it was all to stop, I would see it coming, um, hopefully, and I would, I would adapt what I do 
to then do something else. And whatever it is I did, I'd, I'd become successful at that. Because that's been one of my philosophies. Whatever I've done, be it from ironing trousers, washing plates in a hotel, I'm talking about some of the early jobs that I did. I've always tried to be good at that and be the best at that. So, yes, it might all stop and life might look differently. But my second point that I was going to make kind of related to all that is I do believe that it's all been mapped out. So whatever happens next, that, that magazine coming out was meant to come out in 89 to stop that army career and bring me back to the UK because life had something else in store or planned for me. So it's almost like everything's meant to be. I love that because that allows you to see everything as an opportunity and as part of some some plan which doesn't mean that you're not in control of it doesn't mean you don't you're just a sort of at effect of your life but it does mean that everything's always perfect no matter how awful and I think from you considering some of the really awful stuff that's happened to to have this attitude that actually everything that has everything that has happened everything that is going to happen is part of the plan that in itself is you know you, the thing is you have the choice of whether to see it that way or whether to not see it that way but seeing it that way is just more helpful isn't it absolutely uh, and, and and if there's a slight advantage to seeing it that way then you, you may as well and that that kind of philosophy began right from when mum died and I asked or I told myself that it wasn't a philosophy this was my belief I told myself that okay mum's been taken but you know what she was being beaten all the time we had no money she's now at rest she's at peace no more beatings and also we're going to start again with my dad and we're going to have this fresh start and I know having heard what I've just said it didn't turn out that way but the belief that it was going to turn out that way helped me at that time so if I mean it helped me 43 years ago and that kind of outlook is still with me and I do hope that there's no massive Tragedies around the corner, but there may be. But I do know that I'll bounce back and I'll learn something through the process. And even, even when I do pass away, even if I never get to understand that what, what I thought was a load of rubbish, they've helped me anyway, so why not? There's something that you've done um, more than once, which, um, which I just want to, to hear about, which is to do with forgiveness. Um, it, it feels to me like you've let go of of some of your the baggage of the past and you've been able to forgive and I know that you um, you forgave your father and you also forgave Peter Sutcliffe is that right that is right and and I think it's because I forgave my father that I was able to take that next step because I and incidentally I, I thought I'd forgiven my father when I wrote my book 2004 and in fact if you look in the acknowledgements it actually says that I forgive my father but I knew that I didn't forgive him because when for example I'd see something on TV uh, father and son I'd, I'd have this anger for my father and, and 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 that continued so it's what I thought the public wanted to hear when I put that in that book but when we tragically lost my sister Sonia in 2000 on the 19th of December 2007 which I was reminded of when you said everything's perfect. She actually died on the, the perfect day. I mean, this is really strange 
but I'm a very busy speaker, even in 2007. She died the day after I did my final speaking engagement of that year. And it's, like, it's almost like, oh, God bless her. She, she, she waited until she'd have no impact on my work. And, and she did that. And to have to go break that news to my father, that's when I truly forgave my father. And that feeling, that release was obviously, I realized was good for me. And it was, I think that's the thing that helped me just three years later, 2010, when I met Desmond Tutu, speaking about forgiveness, he was, it was then that I decided to let go of the anger, the resentment, the want for, you know, the need for revenge and all the rest of it for Sutcliffe. I let it go. In, 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 in an instant, well, not in an instant. Obviously, there'd been a few years leading up to that, but it was in at the at the end of his presentation and his words, and I won't get him word perfect, but he he finished the presentation talking about what took place in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation hearings. He said, "You can't force a person to forgive another." And I'm listening to this three row from the front. He said, "But when it occurs, it has the capacity to change a situation." And when he said change. I almost like was pulled, pulled in closer to here. What, what, what I can change things here. And, and yes, you can change the situation by letting it go. And that's what I took from his presentation. And I just, I let it go. And I think I'd wanted to let it go before then through my work with the forgiveness project. I used to go into prisons for them, not because I forgive them, but because I had a take on forgiveness one way or another so I've been exposed to people that had forgiven some really atrocious acts. So I toyed with the idea in my head. And so finally, when I met Desmond Tutu and heard him say those words, I thought, right, I don't have to worry about what the public might think. This is Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Listen, if he's saying it's okay, I'm doing it. And, and, and I and let it go that day. And I think it's... Um, 24th of June, 2010. I'm not saying, as I think I would have um, imagined forgiveness was, i.e. friends with that person. I'm not saying that that's what forgiveness is, and I think it's different for everybody. What I, how I look at uh, the forgiveness is no longer having that anger for them and letting it go. I mean, you know, I would not become his friend, but I would welcome the opportunity to sitting down with him and actually telling him that I've forgiven you for what you've done. I'm not going to do that because I don't think I've got time to go into it now, but I do know that he's not in the frame of mind to accept those words, but that would be a great place to be because there's a slight advantage to him knowing that than him not knowing that. I know that he killed my mum, but you know, there's a slight, as there's a slight advantage to think of things in a positive way. There is a slight advantage. I mean, it, things are, it's taken him up. She's, he's locked up. I'm never going to see her again. That is what it is. There's a slight advantage. And I know he's the perpetrator to him knowing that I forgive him. That would lessen some of how he feels about the whole situation. But like I said, we're never going to get to that place because he's, he's just not open to that. So what's next? You know, you've written books, you speak and you inspire people, you have 
you have continually grown yourself to the point where you can forgive people who've who've had such a an impact on your life um what's next for you do you think I, well there's a few practical things going on around me you know, the business unfolds and develops and there's different things that we do and you know, presentation skills and then we've got the film i just think more of the same i think the the, the next big thing for me is one way or another that message of forgiveness permeating the planet i remember as a child laying in bed after I mean, I can remember the moment. I can remember laying down in bed. I don't know what I'd done wrong, but I was, I'd been sent to bed for something. And I remember thinking, oh, why am I going through all this? And there's some little part of me, some self-talk came out with something like, don't worry. You're going through what you're going through for a reason. It's part of some bigger plan. You're going to affect people all around the world. You don't know how you're going to do it, but you, that's what's going to happen. I never shared that with anybody. And, and I was going to say that may never come true, but it helped me at the time. But the thing is, it has become a reality. You know, when that book came out, I mean, it, for a start, it went into many languages, but even in the countries where it wasn't published, like Mexico or South Africa, I was getting letters from people that had read the book and were helped. So, you know, already to some degree, the the story has inspired and helped people around the world in the way that I thought it would when I was an eight or nine year old boy. I didn't know the way or the mechanisms that was going to take place, but it's happened. And I do, part of me believes that the forgiveness is going to be out there in a much bigger way. The story that I've forgiven. And it's not something that I touch on in most of my presentations, but it's certainly something that I touch on in my latest book. And I think, as I find courage, more courage, over the next few years, I'll be able to speak about it in, um, in uh, maybe in all my presentations. Richard, this has been so great to talk to you. And, you know, wherever my listeners are on their journey of, of you know, these various crossroads and gambles and, and things that they want to do in their lives, I hope that there's, I know that there'll be so much that they can take from, from what you've, from what you've talked about today, so much that can help them to, to let, their, let their past go if it's holding them back, to find a, an attitude that helps them to embrace what's possible for them. And, um, you know, as you said, if, if, if you can do that from, from the experiences that you've done, it's truly inspiring to anybody. Thank you, thank you. One of the things, you know, I've always thought when it, well, one of the things I've heard over the years when it comes to taking risks is what's the worst that could happen? That's one way of looking at it. But you could also say, what's the best that could happen? What could, where could this lead? Well, what I do believe is if you take those risks and you roll that dice, it will take you somewhere else. And it might not end up being the place that you expected, but you won't get there without taking that risk. Richard, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Richard, again. He doesn't actually do a lot of interviews and I really appreciate him speaking with me. We were on the same bill at an event in York a few weeks ago and 
I was really mesmerized by him at the time. And in fact, Ivy was there as well. And uh, she found it just fascinating and inspiring and was so excited that I would get the chance to have a proper conversation with him myself. So thank you again to Richard for, for talking to us all in this interview. You can find out more about Richard and his work at richardmccann.co.uk, richardmccann.co.uk, and you can buy Just a Boy and his other books at Amazon. I'll be back next week. We will still be in Croatia, I think, when I record next week's episode, but we will be working across Europe, as I said, at the start of the show. Do stay in touch. Do follow our trip on Instagram at Brilliant Gamble and the various articles and tips and little bits of inspiration that I'm posting on Twitter. That's also at Brilliant Gamble. And you can go to the website www.abrilliantgamble.com where you can sign up to the free three-part gamble guide. That is an article in your inbox every week for three weeks to help you with your own brilliant gamble. With information about all of that, here is the lovely Ivy Palmer. You. you can get all the episodes of this show plus read the blog and find out more about our travel adventure at www.brilliantgamble.com Sign up to the newsletter and get an advance notice of classes and programs Mummy is running. Plus you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Brilliant Gamble. Finally, please leave a review and star rating for this podcast on iTunes as it helps people find us and take a brilliant gamble of their own.